Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. And this week, we are sharing a recent conversation between Louis Arroyo and Justin Carter. Lewis conducted this conversation in his role as an editor of Mad in Mexico. Established in September 2021, Mad in Mexico is not just an extension, but an essential part of the international initiative of Mad in America. Its mission resonates with the core values of challenging the conventional thinking around mental health, focusing on the Latino and Spanish-speaking communities of the United States. In addition to being the coordinator for Mad in Mexico, Lewis is a psychologist and researcher. He graduated from La Salle University with a degree in psychology and is currently pursuing a master's in the social psychology of groups and institutions. Lewis is in conversation today with Mad in America's own Justin M. Carter, whose multidisciplinary work stands at the intersection of psychology, journalism, disability studies and global mental health. As a psychologist and instructor for the Center for Psychological Humanities and Ethics at Boston College, and the lead research news editor at Madden America since 2015, Justin's approach to mental health goes beyond clinical practice. In the spotlight today is Justin's research titled Inclusion Toward Transformation, Psychosocial Disability Advocacy and Global Mental Health. This study, completed in August 2021, addresses pressing concerns in modern mental health discourse. It critiques the prevailing Western notions that shape the movement for global mental health and champions a rights-based perspective considering cultural, political and economic conditions. This interview explores the crux of Justin's research, examining the transformative potential of an integrated psychosocial disability framework. By interrogating and deconstructing mainstream discourses, this conversation promises to shed light on how we can better serve those with lived experiences of mental distress, transcending traditional boundaries, and embracing a more rights-based, inclusive approach. This conversation aims to redefine the way we approach mental health, madness, psychiatry, and psychological suffering in a world that desperately needs a compassionate, critical perspective. Hi, I'm Luis Arroyo from Madrid, Mexico, and today I'm here with Justin Carter talking about his dissertation of inclusion towards transformation and some other articles that he, he have wrote. So, well, Justin, the idea is to have this kind of interview conversation about, as, as we mentioned, your dissertation about the global mental health and the relation that they've established with the psychosocial disabilities movement and activism. So right now, uh, I'm kind of working on this project about how activism is making these big changes in the way we think about mental health. But during the research, I'm getting stuck in these situations where mental health discourses, psychiatry discourses, are taking advantage of these situations and are basing their own discourses on activism, making them look like they are being progressive in a kind of extractivistic way. But the first topic that I've got in mind is, well, what is global mental health? Because this is a concept that you are constantly referring to. And at the beginning, I thought about it as some kind of discourse established by the WHO, 
a psychiatric discourse, but in the article, The Poison in the Cure, you made a distinction between global mental health and the WHO. So first, thanks for your interest in this work. And it's an important topic than one that we haven't within the side disciplines, within psychology, within psychiatry, paid much attention to, uh, particularly in the global north. The movements of the consu consumer, survivor, ex-patient scholarship and activism has been largely marginalized in our uh, professional disciplines. And now paying attention to the way that psychosocial disability, uh, both as an identity and a, as an advocacy framework, is challenging um, our fields. Um, that's also not being uh, really acknowledged um, or talked about or being allowed to transform the discourse. So, I, I, yeah, I welcome more attention to it. And also just at the outset, want to acknowledge that I'm not a person with a psychosocial disability, and I'm also a researcher in the global north. And so there are all these sort of limitations to the, the depth of my own understanding uh, that I want to acknowledge. And so I hope to kind of serve as, uh, you know, a, a bridge to some extent, inviting uh, other professionals to uh, make the effort to start to, to listen to these voices and to engage with the scholarship in a way that I think could be transformational for our discipline and also improve conditions and the treatment for people uh, worldwide. So starting with those caveats, then, yeah, what is the global mental health movement? Uh, well, it's, it's tough to define, right? Because it's amorphous. Uh, there are lots of institutions involved and there are lots of sort of different conceptualizations and uh, treatment approaches that are captured within this larger framework of global mental health. But uh, for most, uh, the movement for global mental health is connected to the Lancet Commission. Uh, the Lancet is a, is a leading uh, medical journal uh, and Lancet Psychiatry uh, commissioned a uh, report on global mental health that's been led by Bikram Patel uh, and many other um, well-known psychiatric scholars. And from the outset, it was also connected to institutional players like the World Health Organization and the World Bank, and in fact has been connected to the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as well. Um, the idea being from the outset, as you mentioned in the article with Dr. Cosgrove, The Poison and the Cure, was that there was an economic incentive globally and politically for improving mental health treatment. The idea was that the global south has a large number of people who may be suffering from mental health conditions and the existence of these conditions were preventing people from being productive laborers or productive citizens and that this was hampering the global south's attempts to uh, increase their gdp and kind of reach the economic productivity of the global north and there's a lot that's problematic about this narrative and we could pick that apart a little bit, but that was sort of the economic framing initially. And in that if the global community helped to scale up mental health treatments in the global South, that it would help these countries uh, achieve sort of an economic standard that could improve the conditions. I was thinking about that there's this situation that you comment about your own perspective on the field. Like you are not a person with a psychosocial disability and also a researcher from the global North. And you mentioned this as a kind of a limitation. So before we continued with the, the other topics, I was wondering if that specific situation had made your research more complicated or if it gives you some advantages. 
So how would you deal with that kind of situation, how to talk about psychosocial disabilities and not being seen as part of an extractivistic system? It's a complicated question, and I think it cuts both ways in the sense that as somebody with the privilege of being in the academic disciplines in the global north, being a white uh, researcher, that the way our society is constructed, I'm afforded certain privileges that allow me to impact the discourse in certain ways, that I'm taken seriously as a researcher, that I'm granted access to institutions uh, that normally exclude people with psychosocial disabilities, like psychiatric conferences, psychological, American Psychological Association, things like that. And to the extent that I'm able to faithfully represent the interests of groups that I'm not myself a part of, um, but I think I, it can be influential. And I think it's important to have allies uh, that are helping to push the narrative forward. Um, and then the risk in that is that my own interests, consciously and unconsciously, influence how I represent the work. And that I have to work within certain neoliberal constraints in academia as well, or I did, especially as a, as a graduate student, to publish quickly or to uh, translate the uh, language of people with lived experience into recognizable ac academic jargon uh, so that I could be seen as a serious researcher, um, that all those kinds of pressures end up distorting the message in a way that could co-opt the message and make it more digestible to the psychiatric or psychological establishment or, you know, speak for people uh, when they can speak for themselves. And so I think it's, it's a hard, it's, it's a, it's important to be conscious of, of both of those things. I think the ways that you can be helpful, the ways you can be influential, the way you can kind of leverage your privilege to make space for this movement um, in places where it's, space is not being made. Um, and at the same time to be, to recognize your own sort of limitations and the ways that I'm being pushed and constructed in ways, um, that might may not always make me a faithful ally, uh, and try to notice when that's happening and be open to people telling me that when it's happening. So I don't think there are any clear answers except for just kind of acknowledging the tensions on either side and trying to, you know, take a stand on shaky ground. I had a professor, uh, in my master's. Uh, Bob McInerney, who does this great lecture on how all of our concepts are constructed on shaky ground, um, that, and, and yet we still have to take a stand. We still have to decide what matters to us, what our values are, what we're willing to fight for. And so I, I try to, to, when I get caught in this paralysis of, is this for me to talk about? Can I be helpful? Can I be harmful? Uh, what do I need to be aware of? That I still kind of push myself to take a stand for what feels right at that moment and be open to learning uh, when I make mistakes. And I was thinking at the moment that I start to read your dissertation, Inclusion Towards Transformation, when you talk about psychosocial disability as a counter discourse against the psych complex, specifically in the global south, it made complete sense to me. But at the same time, I was thinking about that particularly difficult that you were going through being from Global North and to talk about from Global South. And at least I can tell you that when I read it, it felt like you were really respectful with the discourses of the people with lived experience. 
and going back to inclusion toward transformation, there's this scenario that you talk about psychosocial disability being an umbrella term that covers psychiatric survivor, mad persons, and these all other identities. So do you think like there's a difference on being named in one way or another? It implies something different or it's all part of like this same identity? Yeah, I think there are really important differences and that the language we use and the language people use to understand themselves and their experiences is super important because um, the language itself like opens up possibilities for understanding how to respond. And it also makes other ways of responding less clear, right? And so the way that I came to understand this through the research was that psychosocial disability uh, as a term coming out of the conventions on rights of people with disability in the UN, it offered a new framework. It offered a new umbrella term that lots of different people from all over the world with different sorts of advocacy experiences and different sorts of narratives about themselves and their own mental distress came underneath. And a lot of these groups had previously had interactions and debates, but a lot of them had not. Right. So not only did psychosocial disability provide a way for people that experience to start uh, advocating against the psychiatric discourse and acting as a counter discourse, but it also worked as a way of bringing people with all these different sort of counter discourses together uh, that created a sort of productive friction. And I think the reason why that friction was productive rather than just sort of like a lot of times we see in political organizing that these groups uh, that are mounting a resistance will sort of splinter and start to fight among themselves right? uh, in a way that prevents a sort of unified front uh, against the oppressive regime that's, that's, uh, that they're fighting against. The same sort of thing could happen under the psychosocial disability framework, but it seemed, coming at least coming from the participants I was able to work with who had a pretty extensive experience of advocacy, that there was certain core conditions that they agreed upon. There's a lot that, that, was, that was disagreed upon, but they agreed on letting people come to their own narrative about what they experienced and how they understood that. And they acknowledged that people might have very strong connection to their own story about that and that people should be allowed to have that and then also be allowed the space to revise that over time. Right. And, and I think the reason that why this, there was such a strong belief in allowing people to come to that, come to their own understandings was because they didn't want to replicate the power dynamics that they had experienced in psychiatric settings where somebody says, this is what's going on with you. We know this is the true story about your psychotic episode. It's schizophrenia. It's a genetic condition, XYZ. They didn't want to replicate that kind of dynamic of telling people about themselves. And so they said, okay, like there's a room for disagreement here. Let's allow people to come to their own stories and respect people, respect pe people's process for doing so. Um, so that was a core condition that seemed to allow the groups to coexist with each other and have pr productive disagreements. And so specifically, you mentioned like psychiatric survivor versus psychosocial disability. And so I would see sort of psychosocial disability as this umbrella uh, that serves a very pragmatic purpose. 
it's an identity for some that people are trying to figure out what it means for them, but it's also a, a legal category. And because it's a legal category and it's tied to a human rights discourse and it's tied to a disability advocacy framework, it allows a way of speaking back to psychiatric practices across the world that demands an answer. Whereas in the past, sometimes the psychiatric survivor discourse or the ex-patient discourse or the MAD studies discourse could just be ignored, uh, could just be marginalized, could, could not be engaged with. The psychosocial disability framework, because it has this legal punch to it, uh, and because it has organizations like the UN behind it, and at large non-governmental organizations who want to be compliant with UN standards, those kinds of things, it, it forces psychiatry to respond in some way. And so it, it incentivizes people with different philosophies coming together. Now, psych psychiatric survivor is typical is, you know, is a term that started in the United States. And uh, one of my participants pointed out um, that it's still that's something that, that they saw as still centering psychiatric discourse like it's defined in opposition and if you come from a country or a locale or a community that doesn't have a very strong psychiatric um, history that there aren't asylums in the same way that there are in, in and a lot of that depends on colonial history right but so if you don't have a lot of psychiatric services then there isn't something to be a survivor of in that same way um, and people were hesitant to start defining themselves in opposition to a institution that they never really had interacted with. And in some ways, and sometimes they wish that they had more access to, that they would like to be able to access certain types of treatment if it could be done within a human rights framework, if it could be, it could, if it could not be imposed, if it could not be involuntary. Um, but they, but they're like, we, we would like more access to medications if it's our choice to take them. We would like more access to psychotherapies if there's informed consent and it's, you know, culturally informed and those kinds of things. Um, often not the case that that's the kind of services that get provided, but it's hard. But that was some of the tension around psychiatric survivor in the global South was that it didn't always make sense as a term to people who were in communities where they were, there wasn't this long legacy of psychiatry in the same way that it made sense in the United States as it developed in the 1970s here. Thinking about this term of psychiatric survivor here in Mexico City, I haven't found it so easily. And I think that's because of what you said, that there's not a background of psychiatric abuse in the same way that is in the new United States. With this, I, I, I don't mean to say that in Mexico there's not abuse by psychiatry. Of course there is, but in a different context and in a different situation than in the United States. Uh, and I'm remembering that in the United States, the, the police is more aligned with the psychiatry institution in which police can intervene in the situations. And that is something that won't happen so often here in Mexico. And also uh, this idea of psychosocial disability as a legal category, as well as an identity. This background of being an advocacy for human rights or with the background of the UN the convention uh, is kind of forcing the psychiatry to acknowledge uh, this, con this concept and to give an answer. So I think that psychiatry isn't really answering to the people with lived experience, but answering to other institutions and to other authorities in that sense. So in that way, 
do you think it's possible to talk about mental health outside psychiatry discourses uh, or psychiatry discourse is always implicit when we are talking about mental health? It's a, it's a good question. Um, and I, and I'm not answering from a point of expertise here, but from a point of curiosity, uh, as the world has become so globalized and as the global North has played such a role in colonizing, not just the institutions of the global South, but the language, the concepts that it's becoming less and less possible to exist outside some kind of baseline uh, discourse that's been influenced by Western psychiatric history. And there may still be places where that is more possible than others, but I think at some level, it might be the case that um, alternatives are called alternatives rather than primary treatments because the primary treatment is assumed to be this sort of Western biomedical set of concepts or, or the framework. It's sort of like saying, you know, could, are there places, are, are there ways of experiencing sadness? Are there ways of experiencing, you know, we have to use some word, uh, a low mood, um, feeling distraught without implicitly invoking a concept of depression that is rooted in in western language and psychiatric practice uh i think yes um but in, it's increasingly more difficult to not have that be part of your implicit framework when you're understanding what's going on with your mood i just stuck with tina minkowitz about a book she wrote reimagining crisis support matrix roadmap and policy And in that conversation, she mentioned that, well, maybe crisis isn't the best word because it brings us back to psychiatry. Distress, sadness, even feelings, affections, perceptions always get us back to the idea of is it normal, is not normal, should we or can we medicate it? Yeah, it roots it in the individual too, right? There's that part of the Western Enlightenment philosophy that like, Our feelings are inside of us and they're, they're ours rather than that they're emerging in, in a complex interaction of our relationships and our world and our material you know universe uh, that we're interacting with on a daily basis. And yeah, our language kind of uh, individualizes these experiences as well, sort of automatically. And it's hard even to find language that, that we could use to explore what it would mean for feeling to be uh, interpersonal or relational or uh, not just mine, but, but something that's emerging between the two of us right now as we speak, and our ancestors and our history and like, right, all that stuff that's present and what and how and what comes up in, in a meeting or what comes up in a moment. Uh, with that, I'm going back again to, to your dissertation because I think I remember that there is a part in which you mentioned that advocacy groups in Global South are defying the idea of global mental health because it doesn't take in account the context, the political aspects. It seems that it only takes in account the particular situations like you mentioned. And with that in mind, uh, how can we start to think about mental health outside the psychiatric discourse and with a live experience approach? How can we shift the scenario? And how does advocacy groups are taking part in making that change possible? It's a great question. And I wish I had clear answers. I think I have 
two different lines of thought. Uh, one is sort of philosophical, uh, which means that we need to denaturalize psychiatric concepts uh, in the sense that that we take it. We, I'm using the plural, sort of uh, that uh, the words, the discourse that psychiatry speaks about the mind is speaking about our essence. It's speaking about our natural uh, brain function and that it has sort of the scientific veneer to it. And I think we need to we need to continue to challenge that. We need to continue to open up space for the counter discourses to challenge that. So culturally, uh, we can be open to thinking differently. Right. So the first step is kind of like to to shake things up so that we don't work with the with the assumption in the back of our mind that we're really talking about a brain disorder um, that's purely a chemical imbalance or something like that. We need to continue to shake that up. I think people are doing important work on that front so that so that we're open to other ways of thinking. Um, And then I think there needs to be institutional change that guarantees the full and effective inclusion of people uh, with psychosocial disabilities, however they define, but also offers protections against co-option, against marginalization, uh, and discrimination within those spaces, right? Um, and that also takes into account the sort of importance of having people with those experiences from the specific locale and community and culture and religious background that the research is about um it's not like you can pick somebody with a psychosocial disability from the global north and have them be part of a panel on global mental health stuff in your locale mexico city and assume that they know and that they're going to also be able to correct for all of the misconceptions that are happening in applying a western psychiatric framework in, into central america right so, so we need to also be thoughtful about that and i think that that that's something that we can do like legally, structurally, uh, institutionally, we can put safeguards in place. We can make guarantees uh, about what needs to happen, who needs to be included, what box needs, needs to be checked in order for research to be funded, in order for it to be in compliant with the UNCRPD, in order for it to be compliant with the the sort of human rights framework that is being endorsed by whatever NGO or foundation is funding the research or the university's IR or institutional review boards. Like there are practical uh things that are being done and, and continue to can continue to be done that make those kinds of uh uh spaces possible to challenge the discourse at in the places where it's being constructed and developed uh, with this that you mentioned to give the people the chance to participate in these spaces we're being aware of the position that people are, are taking as in the example a person with psychosocial disability from the global north won't be the same as a person from the global south and i'm starting to think how can we avoid to individualize against this situation because the human rights advocacy and the convention Talk about the reasonable adjustments and all that kind of stuff that has to be made in a particular for every case and situation. It's not the same adjustment for one person to other, but it's taking into account the social context. And I'm thinking in that scenario, in a really superficial way, maybe someone can say, is the exact same thing. Psychiatrist says that mental health is an individual situation that requires individual treatment. And the convention says exactly the same. 
but with some other words. So I know it's hard to answer, but what do you think about that situation? How can we avoid that comparison? Really important question. And you're pointing to one of the like central paradoxes, right? That the human rights framework itself is rooted in in Western Enlightenment, Global North philosophy. <clears throat> and while it may be a useful tool for advocating for rights and for advocating for inclusion, the human rights framework itself, just like any framework, it makes certain things possible and clear, and it makes other things obscure and harder to see and harder to advocate for. Uh, and there's always a question of sort of like harm versus benefit, which again, sounds like a psychiatric discourse, right? Like do the, do the side effects outweigh the benefits or something, right? And I think it's important that, we, that those kinds of questions continue to be asked, right? That as a human rights framework is being used for advocacy, that advocates are also continuing to ask questions about the limitation of that framework. Like we're yes, we're using this framework to get the seat at the table and to get certain accommodations and to change legal frameworks to improve the lives of people who otherwise might be involuntarily committed uh, without rights and who are being treated very badly. And that's all well and good. And at the same time, there might be things that we are missing by, by using this framework. And we need to be looking and thinking about what are the what are the unknown unknowns? What are the things that within this framework we're not aware that we uh, we're not even aware that we're not thinking about? And so there need to be people kind of at the edge asking that question about the limitation of the framework, just as you're doing. Uh, and it's hard to know what those things are, always. And I think you're pointing to one of them, which is that it's still we're still rooted. We still come back to the individual. And so one of the questions about etiology of mental distress is, you know, is this, what is the complex interaction between history, social environment, politics, economics, community, religious beliefs, family dynamics that leads to a person experiencing the world and themselves in a particular way? And it's, it's hard, I think, to hold all of those factors and their mutual causality all at once. And we, we desperately need frameworks that do that justice. And they're messy and they're difficult to apply within a world and within institutions that are built around a concept of the individual um, that's very different than that understanding. But I think even, even the best science, psychiatric science out there, the best sociology out there, I think of like the transcultural psychiatrist Lawrence Kiermeyer's work um, or the sociologist Nicholas Rose's work um, around neuroecosociality. Like, how do we how do we come up with concepts that allow us to think about this complex interplay and complex mutual causality and these feedback loops that lead a person to experience themselves in the world in, in a particular way at a particular time in a particular historical moment? Uh, and I think the better we get at articulating those frameworks they can be transformational even within this human rights framework, which is built on a concept of individual rights. I remember that in the article, The Poison in the Cure, you talk about neoliberal system and how it's not only an economic system, but a system that builds subjectivity, builds the way we relate to one another. That builds the idea that the individual has to take care of themselves and that way has to be put in a constant monitoring like a biopower scenario. 
I think that with the pandemic, the situation exploded. I don't know how do you live it, but here in Mexico, at least, I had to fill a daily report, uh, monitoring all my symptoms. If was feeling, if if I was feeling feverish or things like that, if I take the shot or not, and all this monitoring is disguising the idea that the problem in the, is the individual, not in the social. Everyone has to take care of themselves. So if you don't take care of yourself, no one will. And that brings me back to the medication. Right now, there are those big discourses of wellness, mindfulness, life coaching, and all those kinds of things that put the complete responsibility in the individual. You have the chance to change yourself. And a lot of the times, it's with the idea of to be more fulfilled, to be more productive, to be more. And all this have a really big impact in the way we think about our own mental health. And in that situation, I think that the psychosocial disability gives us the chance to say, well, I'm not feeling good right now. I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling anxious, etc." And it gives us the chance to really feel and explore all those aspects of emotion that psychiatry tries to suppress in some kind of way. Yeah, so many important points there. Um, I think first that operating within this neoliberal logic, it's the ideology that fuels capitalism, that fuels free markets, that we're all individuals who have to be make rational choices in a market um, to kind of decide winners and losers, and that's the best thing for the world, blah, 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 um, produces a certain kind of person that allows that kind of ideology to continue to function, right? And so as subjects, we get uh, taught uh, how to be the kind of people that make our societies work. Uh, work meaning like, uh, you know, not actually produce health or well-being for people, but work in the sense that they keep the system running, uh, at least until it destroys enough of the planet that it ceases to to function. Um, and so when we talk about this individualizing tendency, it, it's important to point out that you're swimming against a very strong current. And it's very hard for us living in these kind of neoliberal societies to think of ourselves outside of those terms, because that's, it's like escaping history in some way. It's very difficult to do. Um, and I think the pandemic example is a, is a good one. Uh, that one way we can move within a pandemic and thinking about the spread of disease is by hyper-individualization uh, and hyper-individual responsibility, right? That we all have to self-monitor all the time. Um, and and the, the government will help us monitor our, or provide these services that force us to monitor ourselves and report. And then we all take individual responsibility for the spread. And that's part of it. But you could also see a world in which you're thinking more about what are the conditions of an environment uh, that are, you know, the political conditions, the community conditions, or the environmental conditions of a community that make it more likely for a community to be healthy uh, versus uh, more likely for it to be, for people to be sick. Um, and you could imagine like more green spaces, more outdoor environments. Uh, governments providing a certain amount of uh, universal uh, income that uh, prevents people from having to go out into dangerous situations to work, to earn money, to survive poverty, to prevent to prevent their family from being in poverty, all these sorts of things, right? We could, we could think about it differently. Uh, and I think the psychosocial disability framework invites us to think in that kind of different way about 
about psychosocial disability and that uh, it, it, it invites us to think about what in the environment, what in the material and ideological environment is producing the experience of disablement um, for a community or for an individual. And I think those things can be, uh, it invites us to articulate those things. And, 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 and once we articulate those things, then they're more amenable to being challenged and changed. And if we instead focus on the disability within the individual or the mental illness, and we think about changing what's inside the person through medication or psychotherapy or mindfulness, we, we are missing what needs to be changed ideologically in the community, in the country, in the, in the world geopolitically, what needs to change in the physical built environment in terms of like teratogens and, and uh, access to green space and access to the kinds of community spaces that lead to healthy relationships. And, and when we turn, when we switch that focus, access to certain kinds of rights that prevent people from being discriminated against or oppressed or, or bullied or uh, uh, you know, access to justice, like all these kinds of things, uh, it allows us to see those issues more clearly in a way that invites us to challenge and change them, which of course, you know, is not what the uh, neoliberal ideology wants us to think about, right? <laughs> um, because it, make, it could make us into the kinds of communities that don't fit that don't allow the system to function the way that it wants to function. I remember the quote that you mentioned in The Poison in the Cure, and you mentioned it also in Inclusion Toward Transformation that says, what kind of creatures do we think we should become? It's a quote from Rose. And you mentioned this question as the one that should confront us, not only how can I change myself, but how can I transform others and make a collective change? And this also, I want to mention the example that you use in the article where, where you talk about Syrian refugee situation that is not only lost of their minds, but a lost of the words. And the only alternatives that we give them back is medication, is therapy, but we don't want to change the material situation of the people. That is like saying the problem is not that you had to leave your country because it was being bombed. The problem is that you are sad. So as long as you're not sad, everything is okay. So do we really want to become a creature that denies all the situation and denies the experience of others? And also I was thinking, and this is a problematic question, what is the role that mental health professionals should take in this new scenario, in this new context and with the counter discourses? Do mental health professionals should participate or should step aside and let that people with psychosocial disabilities and advocacy for human rights take full control of this scenario? Such good <laughs> questions. Um, a lot to respond to, and it's all very thought-provoking. I think I want to acknowledge that the uh, it's not that they've lost their minds, but that they've lost their worlds comes from the psychiatrist Derek Summerfield, who's done really important work on pushing back uh, on Western conceptualizations of depression, particularly in these uh, combat zones and, and uh, places of estrangement. What role should mental health professionals play? And what kind of, in, in kind of determining what kind of creatures are, are attempting one answer to the question <laughs> uh, of many answers and what kinds of creatures 
do we want to become? Should we become? Is it ethical for us to become? And I think it's an important question whether having psychiatrists and psychologists and the side disciplines in general involved in answering that question in such a large way is a good thing. I don't think it is. I don't think our disciplines speak to that question with nuance, complexity, and ethical understanding that other disciplines like maybe literature or history, uh, sociology and anthropology are, or maybe have, have more nuanced uh, and human frameworks for, for speaking to that question. Um, and yet we arrive at the reality that probably because the side disciplines fit so well within a neoliberal worldview, we've been afforded a very large uh, megaphone to speak to this question. And increasingly, right? Like uh, children, youth, adolescents today are increasingly invoking psychological and psychiatric language to understand themselves and their relationships in a way that was unprecedented even a, de- you know, a generation ago. Um, and I think, like I, like I said, the, the reason for that is because it fits with the prevailing ideology rather than challenging it. So if our disciplines are being called to and begin being given that megaphone, I think it's important to have those within the discipline who think that there are problems with that speaking out as loudly as possible and trying to influence that discourse. The question of what kind of people might we become? Um, I think we also have to think about the ecological collapse um, of our planet. And, you know, of course, the disproportionate impact of that on humans who are located in different positions in the world, but also in species that are located in in different positions in the world. And are we capable of becoming the kind of beings, the kinds of creatures that avert the continued tragedy, uh, uh, the continued destruction of our planet? And if we are, what does that look like and how do we get there? Um, I think we'd have to really rapidly transform our psychological understanding of the self towards a more relational and ecological understanding of a human being um, that doesn't fit within a capitalist or neoliberal understanding of our our role in the world. Uh, Not just to extract and and exploit for our own benefit, but um, that we're mutually constituted by one another and our engagement with the world and and, and the animals and uh, our whole ecological niche. Uh, And that without them, we aren't who we are and we aren't able to become healthy creatures um i think transforming to that kind of understanding uh would take more than a transformation on the psychological discourse but also it would involve strongly the arts um and articulating a different way of being a person to us um and making those kinds of subjectivities accessible and possible for people young people especially as they try to figure out what it means to be a person in our world and then in terms of the role of the psychological discipline, psychologists, psychiatrists in, in the movements of people with psychosocial disabilities, I think, again, that's complicated and fraught, uh, as I, we spoke about earlier. Um, but to the degree to which we can come alongside people uh, from the understanding of, like, I know some things, um, some of those things might be helpful and some of those things might be harmful. Uh, and I want to know more about uh, what you need, or what you understand. Uh, how can I kind of join you on this journey? What can I add? Um, and uh, and what should I be aware of that uh, that I should not do? Uh, what will get in the way?
And we might not know that all at the outset. And we'll have to be able to form the kind of relationship where you can let me know when I'm getting in the way. And I can let you know when I see something maybe that you haven't considered yet. And we can do that from a place of mutual respect and understanding when that's welcome, not assuming that everyone wants that kind of person to come and accompany them on, uh, and provide whatever they can provide. But when it is welcome and when it's sought for, I think we should be thinking about how we can how we can fill that role. So the participation of mental health professionals should always be in a form of question. What can we add? Should we leave? And to always try to establish this kind of dialogue when the answer is expected to be on the other part. Th th thanks a lot, Justin. I, I really love your work. Oh, I really appreciate the back and forth. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views, and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.